Welcome back, everybody. Um, this is our, our third installment of our series on sourcing food, plants, animals, and the Jews who tend them. Um, and tonight we are back with our buddy Didia Greenberg, who um, pitched it for us on Monday uh, with an amazing class about kosher slaughter and um, shkita. And I don't think anyone has ever shaved their legs with a shkita knife on a Jewish class before. So record-setting class. Um, and we're so, we're so thrilled to have you back with us tonight. Uh, we're going to talk about poultry and Sour Valley Chaim, and we're, we're just very, very excited um, to have another opportunity to have a session with you. Um, and we'll also be doing, we, we ran out of time at the end last time for some Q&A, so we'll, we'll pick up with that at some point also. Um, for, we had a lot, a lot of questions in the chat at the end of Monday, and so we'll, we'll, we'll um, hopefully get some time to come around with some of those. But uh, for those of you who weren't with us, I will um, just reintroduce Rabbi Greenberg. Um, Rabbi Greenberg is an Israeli-born chokit, an aspiring poultry farmer and an educator. In his 20s, he learned at Yeshiva Ba'ayim for three years where he became interested in animal-related mitzvot. And a few years after leaving Yeshiva, he decided to learn shkita so that he could process his own naturally raised animals. After he received his Kabbalah, which is certification from the Honorable Rabbi Yisrael Landsman in the fall of 2011, Yudita went on to work in a kosher beef slaughterhouse. And during this time, he studied humane animal handling techniques and became, uh, began teaching about shrita and animal well-being in lots of different um, venues. And today, along with working to start Lab Farm, which is a forthcoming sustainable standard bred heritage poultry farm, um, Rabbi Greenberg gives in-depth presentations about shrita and provides training to diverse range of students and institutions through his personal business called The Kosher Cut. Uh, Rabbi Greenberg, it was so grateful to have you back again with us and take it away. Thanks so much. Um, hi, everybody. Uh, glad to be back here today. Again, uh, my name is Yedidia Greenberg, and I'm a shochet and also working on poultry farming. Um, so uh, last time that we talked um, during the last uh, session, there were some questions. And I think I'm going to start off with some of those questions about kosher slaughter. Um, and for anybody that wasn't here for that session, I'm sorry, um, but I think the questions should still make pretty good sense. So we're gonna go, I'm gonna talk, I'm gonna answer some of those questions. And after we do that, I'm gonna talk about poultry farming and why I'm starting a standard bred heritage poultry farm and what that means and what poultry farming looks like today. And uh, and from that, we're gonna look at Tsar Balechim, the mitzvah of Tsar Balechim, the mitzvah of not causing unnecessary pain to animals and uh, a question a lot of people ask is how can factory farming be okay when we have this mitzvah of Tzar Um And so I'm going to try to reconcile the two and figure out a path forward. Um, so with all that being said, let's go to the questions um, from, uh, from the last class. Okay, so first question is how many cows can be slaughtered in an hour in a commercial plant? Um, it, can be kosher slaughtered in an hour in a commercial plant. So uh, it depends and it ranges on the plant, but the average that I've seen in plants today is usually around 200 in an hour. That's kind of the norm, but, and also from what I've seen, I've not seen everything, I'm not, you know, but I have been to what I believe to be the biggest in the world right now, which is in Uruguay, which does 550 a day. Um, uh, they do 550 cows a day. Sorry, 
I said 200 an hour. I meant to say 200 in a day. 200 in a day, sorry. Apologies. That's kind of the norm. Um, the biggest in the world right now is 550 in a day. There's been, I think, bigger in the past. Right now it's 550 in a day. And the smallest I've seen are around 50 generally. You know, you can get down about 10, but uh, 50 is a more manageable number in terms of having enough volume um, for modern production. Uh, so, and then they ask, uh, you know, so how much, that, that's about, um, so if, if you're, um, if you're looking at how fast, some, how fast it can go, if you try to slaughter with one box, one kill box, which is the machine that we use for killing today of, of cattle, if you try to slaughter more than one every 40 to 60 seconds, you're really going to get into some inhumane territory. You can do one every minute every maybe a little bit less than a minute and still do okay if you have a really well-run plant. But um, if you start to really go below that, you're gonna really have problems. And there are problems in the industry. It's not a perfect industry, um, in the entire meat industry. And there's also plants that run really well. Um, so, okay, so that's that question. Um, one of the questions was where and how does a person train for shrita? Um, if the acceptable fail rate is zero, then how does anyone learn? So I'm saying the acceptable fail rate in Shrita in a, in a kosher slaughterhouse today is, is zero. So there has to be plentiful workers and you have to really do everything you can to not have any non-kosher meat coming out of a factory. Um, so the answer there is that um, generally when people are first learning how to shecht, they're not shechting for people to eat kosher meat, um, certainly not from a factory. You might shecht a little bit, you know, small amounts just outside the factory or at home, you know, wherever it is. And and a lot of that will turn out kosher in the beginning, even though you might make a mistake here or there. I just taught a guy um, uh, a shechita for the first time the other day, and he had uh, three out of four of his animals that he shechted turned out kosher. A shechita is not necessarily that hard to get kosher, baseline kosher. To be really skilled takes more practice. But just to get basically kosher is not that hard. And then um, oftentimes people learn in non-kosher places. People will go to the live poultry markets and just slaughter there for hours and just train and practice. That's pretty common nowadays. Um, okay, so, uh, and people usually learn either in a kosher plant, they'll go and try to get a job at a kosher plant and apprentice there, or they'll get private tutors. That's the most normal way. Although some people in Israel, there are some schools which teach Avodat, which teach Avodat Kodesh, um, Safrut, Mila, Prismelas, uh, and, and writing Torahs. And they'll also teach Shechita sometimes, but it's not that common. So um, it's generally pretty hard to learn Shechita in America, a little easier in Israel. Um, what emotions do you feel when doing Shechita? Does the bloodshed ever cause you distress? So when I slaughter animals in the beginning, bloodshed caused me distress sometimes, not in the moment. It would uh, it was more subconscious. It would happen later. I would sometimes have dreams at night, um, and I would wake up, and that would cause me some some distress. Um, never really in the moment. Most people feel like it's going to cause them more distress than it does in the moment, or just in general, because it's actually much more natural for us to kill and eat animals than we might think in today's world, where we're so separate from it. Today, it does not cause me really distress. Um, I don't have dreams anymore. Although what I will say is if the animal, if I see or hear an animal experiencing um, above average amounts of suffering, that does cause me distress. I don't like seeing that. It bothers me a lot. 
um, seeing animals being tortured, just being, you know, things being done really badly bothers me. So it, it's not, no, nothing, but it's, you know, if everything's done well, I, I don't, I don't experience any kind of distress. Um, what on common animals have you shechted? Not really anything too uncommon. I've shechted chickens, turkeys, ducks, sheep, and cattle. I've definitely shechted some unusual breeds of cattle, like uh, like Scottish Highlands, and um, and uh, and um, this isn't so unusual, but maybe more unusual here is the is the um, the uh, Brahma Brahma cattle. Uh, I'm not quite remembering. Anyways, but they have the big long necks with tons of skin so you actually have to hold it down and you're slaughtering like you're going through the skin for like 10 for like a few seconds before you get up to the neck because they have the they have very droopy skin um but they're very nice cattle very easy to, to slaughter okay so um but i'm not done i want to do some other animals like deer or elk or um you know uh some some different more unusual animals. i, I also did quail i forgot quail i've done so but i'd like to do more unusual animals um okay um, if the shecht isn't clean due to one of the five criteria, so if somebody does a shechita and it's not kosher, is there anything that the shochet is obligated to do? If we drop a Torah, the person community has to do something. What about what if the shecht is, isn't clean? It seems that the human should have some responsibility in our ethical construct, not just dismissing the animals on kosher. So the answer is no, and actually the opposite. We really um, tell people not to give any kind of punishments for somebody to not, if they've not done a kosher slaughter. Um, even the thing about the Torah is not really true. It's like a minhag in certain communities where the community would fast if a Torah was dropped, but there's no requirement for that. But in terms of the uh, kosher slaughter, we don't want to give any incentive for the shochet to say that his animal was kosher when it's not. All these things that you're doing, you're not pausing, you're not stabbing in. These are things that usually only the shochet will really be aware of. So we, you need to have a high degree of certainty that he's not going to, to feel pressured to say the animal is, is kosher when it's not. And it, in that, you're not allowed to pay anybody less um, if the animals aren't kosher. You have to pay them the same, whether it's kosher or non-kosher, because we do not want to have any. It's very hard. There is a lot of pressure on you when you're doing kosher slaughter, get everything kosher. And you really have to have a high degree of, um, of self-control. And so we really don't want to do this. We want to do the opposite of this. We don't want to put anything on the shochet to make him feel like he needs to, to have things be kosher. If things aren't kosher, it's not, you didn't, you're not doing anything unethical. It's just, it's just, you know, it's just not, um, it may, if you try to do it not kosher, it's unethical, but maybe, but it's not, um, it's not unethical if you just, you know, you made a mistake. Um, <clears throat> okay, so this was a, a good one that I wanted to answer. Sorry to play the MD card, but I will. Severing the esophagus and trachea will cause profound stress, but not immediate death. Severing the carotid ju or jugular has a high likelihood of causing unconsciousness, so there isn't stress until death. How did this fit into contemporary Shrita laws guidelines? Okay, so, um, sever so I'm going to answer this uh, first part first. Severing the esophagus or trachea will cause profound stress. Um, what I would say is that this is an assumption that this person is making, this doctor is making. Um, sure, certainly, if you tell a person and we have the knowledge of what an esophagus and trachea is, and we can see what is being done to us, and you go and you say, "I'm," and I'm gonna, and then you, and then you do that, that person will, will experience extreme stress and trauma from that, from having somebody cut their necks. Cows don't think about that. They think they're only they only experience in the moment. They live in the moment. They experience what they experience. If they now they might experience stress in a slaughterhouse because they're being 
in that they're in an unusual place, they're being held in unusual ways, but um, uh, if the pain, if the cut doesn't cause pain, there's no necessary reason why, or if, even if it causes mild pain, there's no necessary reason why cutting the neck will cause the animal to be stressed out. And this is an assumption made by a lot of the European bodies when they said, okay, kosher slaughter is definitely bad because there's nerves and there's things, but they're not really basing it on anything most of the time. They're just saying, well, in assumption, if you cut something's neck, it's going to stress it out. So it's not really true. Now, what I will say is severing the esophagus and trachea without severing the, the, um, the uh, jugular, the, the blood veins will cause stress eventually because the animal's not going to bleed out and, and, and it's going to... Um, it's going to take it a very long time to die. It could start going into shock. There could be a lot of issues. So sometimes, unusually, what can happen very unusually is blood vessels can become occluded when you cut the esophagus trachea, and it can cause a lot of problems. But it's it's that's kind of rare. So um, answering the second part of the question, severing the cardioid or jugular has a high likelihood of causing unconsciousness, so there isn't stress until death. And what I will say is, yes, we want to sever all the major blood vessels. The best way to ensure that happens is to make a major cut that will sever the, the esophagus and trachea entirely. And what I made, the point that I made during the presentation is that trying to focus on the individual blood vessels will not do as good of a job as just telling the shochet to just cut the neck through. Just cut it through, sever the esophagus and trachea. It does a much better job of severing all the blood vessels than if you're just saying, okay, cut this, cut that. And the halacha focused on that, focused on make sure the esophagus and trachea cut. There's no way to really focus to make sure all the little blood vessels are cut. There's some of the blood vessels are further in the back of the neck, they're in between the signs. It's, it's, it's not practical. So this idea of, of severing the major blood vessels as a focus of the halakha is not practical. There is discussion about severing the major blood vessels. You do want to sever them. But, um, but if you happen not to, it could still be kosher or things like that. But, um, you know, it's, there's a complicated conversation, but, um, I hope that kind of answers the question there. Okay, so um, what can we do to push back against the slaughtering ban spreading across Europe and help prevent additional countries from adopting similar laws? Um, well, in order to really do anything about it, we'd need investment um, into um, creating campaigns to go against these shrita bans, these kosher slaughter bans, um, how to best angle those campaigns where they should be just honest conversations, I feel like I, you know, like we had, uh, you know, on Monday, um, or whether they need to be more strategic in, uh, in trying to push a certain kind of message. I'm not sure, but uh, it, it would take investment, it would take money and, uh, and time and, and, and working in these communities. And what I would say is, um, what you'd want to do is, there's a lot of, there's, you know, there's a lot of places that have bans against it. One of the things is that you would want to have a Jewish Muslim um, uh, alliance against it. That strengthens our position quite a bit. Um, it can, in some countries it might not, um, uh, because Muslims are, you know, uh, the, in certain ways Muslims can be more um, looked upon as, a, as an aggrieved group or, you know, or, uh, in society. And, and so they have some strength there and then we have some strength and, and just joining those forces really makes us stronger. And, and those bands are really, they're not just anti-shrita, they're anti-halal. They're very much anti-Muslim, anti-Jewish, anti-anybody different kind of bands and different weird thing, you know, things that we're not used to. Um, that, that, you know, that, those are some things that, that would really, uh, 
that could really do good. And you'd have to really look at what are the best countries to look at if we can win in one, we don't necessarily can't necessarily win all the countries. A lot of people don't really care about this. A lot of these countries have small Jewish communities, but really looking at where can we really attack these bands and, and do the most good. Um, and certainly if we saw any kind of um, um, growth towards that in America, we need to really fight that. But that's there's not really any kind of openness towards those types of bands in America. And people really see those as being anti-Semitic if they're ever kind of brought up here. So luckily we don't have that issue here right now. Um, okay, so there's a concept of going beyond the letter of the law. Has this been applied in kosher and to prove welfare? Um, no, it's uh, not really been brought about in kosher. And I think maybe we'll talk about that, um, you know, in, in the coming presentation a little bit. Kosher industry has just gone along with the way the industry has changed. The industry has changed over the last hundred years and kosher has just been trying to keep up, just trying to work with what's going on. There hasn't been, you know, only in the past 10, 20 years has even really been uh, an understanding coming to people that the factory farm industry maybe is not the most desirable kind of industry and, and that we'd like to change it. Um, and that, that awareness is only starting to now really come to the kosher community. Uh, in non-commercial settings, do shochtim ever use knives not specifically made for shechita? Uh, no. What you do have is knives that were not made specifically made specifically for shechita that have been um, that have been modified for shechita. But we do not use sword. It said swords or knives or different things. Uh, you really can't. You you have to have a today. The uh, what we do is we only use um, dedicated knives for kosher slaughter and very specific design, very specifically made. And so if they're different, if they're coming from the commercial industry, usually you need to make some changes. Um, okay, so, <clears throat> all right. Um, um, okay, and I'll just answer this one question. This is a speculative obviously, but do you believe the animals know they are about to die? Do they have consciousness of death that you can ex extrapolate from their behavior? Obviously can ask them. Animals live in the moment. Um, is my belief and from also from the evidence. They don't, um, they might understand, uh, they don't certainly, I don't think have death as a concept like we do um, at all. Um, but I believe animals live in the moment. They're not in the, in the slaughterhouse. They don't know they're about to die. That's also been proven through some scientific tests that um, cows don't behave any differently in a slaughterhouse than they do in uh, different areas where they're being moved. They, they, they experience stress because they experience stress when you move them. And when you, you know, you're, you're moving them around in feedlots and things like that, but they don't act, behave any differently in a slaughterhouse. They don't know that they're about to, if they did, they would be very scared. Um, they do, but they, they, they experience death from things that they know. So um, at least they have instinct with some things like predators, they have instinct to be afraid of predators, wolves and things like that. They have, and then if they see some, an animal being killed violently and yelling, they will react. If they see an animal being killed and just shot in the head and they just fall, they don't react. They don't know what that is. They won't run away from that. They, they don't experience any excess stress. So um, that's a, hopes it gives you a good idea of that. Um, okay, so I'm going to now uh, move into the um, presentation. And to start, I'm going to be doing, um, we're going to be talking first about the poultry industry a bit and what I do. So I'm, 
I work with a man named Frank Reese and uh, the Good Shepherd uh, Conservancy, Good Shepherd Poultry Ranch. And I also am working with him to start a farm here, Lev Farm on the East Coast, which will bring um, standard bread, heritage poultry to, um, to the East Coast, to the kosher consumers and beyond. Um, so that's a big part of what I do other than the shechita. And, um, and uh, in order for you all to understand what that is even, right? I'm gonna explain about the poultry industry, um, the history of chickens, how we got to the industry where it is today and to really understand it deeply. And then you can understand the change I'm trying to make. And we can talk about a little bit about halacha and how it connects. Okay, so I'm gonna do a screen share and show you guys a, a little PowerPoint. Okay, everybody can see everything all right? Perfect, okay. So first I'm just gonna to talk to you guys a little bit about chickens, history of chickens. Um, so uh, chickens were domesticated about 5,000, 5,400 years ago, um, we believe from China, from uh, red or green jungle fowl is the general belief. Um, the wild fowl that uh, lived in the, in the trees and uh, we believe they were domesticated mostly as pets in the beginning, maybe for fighting, more of, for entertainment. Um, from there, they did spread all over the world. Um, the first evidence of them ever being eaten was actually in Israel about 2000 years ago. Um, and uh, so they, they were eaten more recently. And that's why you see in the Torah, they don't talk about eating chickens. Um, that came later. And there's no, no chickens that are used in the temple. Um, all right. So they started being later and um, they became more and more popular for eating both for eggs and for meat over time. And over time, breeds were developed. And what we're going to talk about, a lot of what we're going to talk about is what is a breed. We need to understand that for understanding standard bread poultry. Um, <clears throat> does anybody know what a breed is? A variant. A variant. Mm -hmm. Yep. It's a variant. Yes. Um, there can be variants that aren't breeds also. A genetic pedigree. Right. It's a genetic pedigree. Um, that, that, that's a good way to go about it. Um, one of the things about a breed is that for an animal to be considered, for a chicken to be considered a breed, it needs to breed true. So the parents, when they produce offspring, the offspring need to look like the parents, they need to have the same confirm, confirmation. Uh, you might have what they might call mongrel chickens um, uh, um, or, uh, you know, country chickens where there's just, you have a bunch of chickens and they all breed and you don't control it at all. And then the, the kids can look different than the parents and it just is what it is. And those kind of chickens can be healthy, but you have a hard time maintaining quality and maintaining certain traits. And what happened in the um, poultry world was over time, people created breeds and they developed breeds. They said, oh my God, look, I have this chicken and it came out white. And uh, with these kinds of feet and a comb that looks like this, and it was really good at egg laying. And as we grew these traits, um, it, it, the fertility improved and they developed breeds over time. <clears throat> um, this was done very um, in a non-organized um, fashion all over the world. And um, when America came about, all the breeds kind of came to America from all over the world. And in the United States, um, and then in Great Britain, this was organized better than anywhere else in the world. Um, and in the United States, the APA was created. And in Great Britain, the Poultry Club of Great Britain were created. And they created standards, standards of perfection in America and the British standards in Britain. 
and standards for all the different breeds. Some of these breeds were very old, like the Menorca and the Leghorn. Those were old breeds um, from, uh, from the Mediterranean. That's called the Mediterranean class. Very good egg layers, they lay white eggs. And they're very good egg layers, but they're generally smaller bodied. They do well in hot weather. Okay, and the American breeds that were created were really good for meat production. The best meat production birds that had, that had ever been created. And um, they laid brown eggs generally and they had very good meat and they were good in cold weather. Kind of matches, right? So breeds were created all over the world and then they would really match the locale, match the nature, the thing that they had to live in. They all had to live primarily outdoors, these animals, and they were bred to, to, uh, to, um, for their environment. They were bred to have good immune system. They were bred to be fertile. They were bred to be tasty and to be productive also, right? So it was bred for a lot of things. and but all these breeds were very healthy and and what the APA did was created standards of breeding and then you create a standard bred poultry okay and this created a very um healthy um and growing uh chicken industry in the united states um okay now the chicken industry in the united states was still very small today chicken is the most eaten meat in the united states over 80 pounds a year per person is the average um, but back in the early 1900s, it was the least eaten meat out of the big three. Chicken, uh, pork, and beef were about 80 pounds a year, and chicken was about 15, 20 pounds a year. People would eat chicken once a week on uh, Sunday generally. It was a special occasion bird. It was expensive. It was expensive to produce, and, uh, and it was considered a delicacy. And, um, and uh, it just wasn't eaten that much. All, and same thing with turkey also. So um, what's, and what's happened since then, actually people don't eat more beef or, uh, uh, beef or pork than they did back then, but they eat a lot more chicken than they used to. That's the main meat consumption that has really risen since early 1900s. Um, and some things changed this. The first thing that changed this was a fateful accident. Uh, and this happened in the Delmarva Peninsula, um, which is Delaware, majority of Delaware is in Delmarva Peninsula. And so is uh, a part of Maryland, okay? And that's just south of, uh, of Jersey here, across the, across the bay. And um, that area is now, um, it, became a it became a huge chicken producing um, uh, area, region. And what happened was this lady, Cecile Strong, she ordered 50 chickens and she actually got 500, okay? 500 chickens. And she decided, I'm gonna raise these. And there was new feeds, much better feed now that were being developed then that were really meant to meet all the nutritional needs of the chicken. There was new medicines. And she was able to make them survive in a very small area. And she said, wow, like I can make a lot of money with this. And her business took off. She was able to sell them much cheaper and beat up all the competition. And her, and her, um, her, her business grew and grew and grew and it became incredibly successful. And then the whole area, the whole Delmarva just started raising all these chickens in that way. And it spread throughout. And this was really actually the beginning of factory farming. Um, this really started the whole factory farm system came from this. So all started with chickens. Um, <clears throat> and they were just able to produce food in a much cheaper manner than had ever been produced before. Um, now, that was the first kind of thing, but still it only increased chicken. It was increasing it, but only increasing it so much. Um, and what really got it going started with something called the Chicken of Tomorrow contest, which happened in 1948. And also there was a second contest in 1950. They asked breeders all over the country, we want to breed a bigger, better chicken that grows faster, 
on less feed, has bigger breasts. We want to grow the, the, the chicken of the future, the super chicken, right? And um, <clears throat> this contest was sponsored by USDA and it was a big deal. And two winners came um, the first year, um, the Plymouth Rock and the Cornish. So the Cornish is an old British breed and it's very slow growing. It um, has a little bit bigger breast. It does not lay many eggs. It's not a very productive breed. Um, and this is not the Cornish hen. Cornish hen is just a marketing term, you know, so don't get confused with that. This is the traditional standard bred Cornish, okay? And, but what it did, it had a little bigger breast and was, when it was crossed with the Plymouth Rock, this is an F1 cross, okay? When you have two, two pure breeds and you cross them together, it's called an F1 hybrid, okay? It's still a very healthy bird, F1 hybrid. There's nothing wrong with it. It gets a little bit of bigger. It had a little bigger breast, had good conformation, very good quality meat. And it won the first chicken tomorrow contest. After that, later, the New Hampshire, um, which was a slightly faster growing American breed um, that was also very good, very healthy, was crossed with the Cornish. It won the second chicken tomorrow contest. And these contests were won by two companies, two breeding companies that are still here today. Uh, Cobb, which is the biggest, um, one of the two big companies. And the other one is, is uh, Ross, and Ross Vantress. And that now has become Aviagen. And today, those two companies, Aviagen and Ross, they, um, they control um, pretty much all the poultry genetics in the world of all the hybrid, um, all the hybrid chickens in the world. And um, that includes over 9 billion broilers raised in the United States each year, okay? These are huge companies. Um, ain't Monsanto got nothing on these companies, okay? These companies have huge amounts of control over the industry, and this is how they did it. At first, they just created this F1 hybrid, okay? That's not such a big deal, all right? That's normal. But later, what they found was, um, what was found was they were doing feed experiments, okay, on leghorn chickens. The leghorn, remember, is the egg-laying breed. It's very, it's very small. It's scrawny. It doesn't have good meat, okay, but it's good at egg-laying. But they were doing these feed experiments, and they found there was a chicken that was born obese. It was an obese dwarf. It was a mutation. Now, there's lots of mutations in birds when you're breeding birds. Some of them are good. Some of them are bad. You can have mutations that has a different feather color, lays more eggs. All different things can happen. But you can have these mutations, which are not so healthy. And what they had was uh, an obese chicken that was born. You can see that on the left. And, um, and it was fat, and it grew fast, but it died. It died very fast also. It was not a viable bird. Um, and these were called obese lines, okay? But they thought, you know what? This chicken grows really fast on little feed. And it had something, had some hypothyroidism, it had, it had some conditions that may do. They said, but if we can isolate a smaller percentage of this, of this uh, mutation and breed it into our lines of birds, we could make the super chicken. And that is what they did, okay? And what they created was the Cornish cross hybrid is what we call it today. The Cornish cross originally had um, Cornish, New Hampshire, Plymouth Rock, and Leghorn all bred into it, the obese lines of Leghorns. Although today, um, there's no breed. It's not considered a breed. There's no breed in it. It does not breed true. It is an F14 hybrid. There's 14 crosses to get the chicken that you eat on your plate today, okay? Um, they've inbred lines of chickens at the top of these crosses, okay? Inbred lines, which maintain um, certain percentages of obese genes, um, of, of the different genes, um, different gene mutations that all create the modern day Cornish cross. 
Um, these include obesity, okay, the obesity gene, and they've now been able to map the genome of the chicken and actually use that, and they will map the genomes and say, okay, this chicken has, you know, 50% of the obesity gene. We want to use this in our lines, and we want to recreate that chicken. Dwarfism, um, if you've seen the chickens today, they have very short legs. If you see my standard bred chickens, they have very long legs. Dwarfs tend to have bigger bodies, smaller limbs, okay? That's one type of dwarfism. Um, <clears throat> hyperthyroidism, fast growth, and there's others too, large breasts, okay? And so they have these inbred lines which maintain um, percentages of these genes, and then and then they combine those to get the modern-day Cornish cross. So modern-day Cornish cross grows in six to eight weeks where to the same size that um, a standard bred heritage chicken from before the, the 1948 took it 16 to 18 weeks to grow, okay? It goes about three times faster. Um, Monday Cornish Cross eats between two to two and a half pounds of feed per pound of growth, okay? Um, the standard bread chickens take about three and a half to four pounds of feed per pound of growth. And what the, what the standard bread has that's good is they have fertility and immunity and they have growth and they have it balanced. But what they've done is they've increased growth or um, for hybrid egg chickens and increased uh, production of eggs and they've really decreased fertility and immunity. So the chickens are not as healthy, they're not as immune, they're not as fertile, okay? And, um, and also part of what they've done is they have uh, the parent stock. So the chickens have had bred out of them the ability to um, know when they are full. So they will just keep eating. Now, when they're young, um, they'll just eat, but they grow so fast that it goes into their growth. But as they get, but once they hit um, the age where they, um, they stop growing, which is what you need breeders. Breeders need to go to full size and then they breed new chickens. Those birds um, must be put on something called starvation diet, okay? So those birds have to not be, not be given feed in, in order to keep them from overeating and killing themselves, basically eating themselves to death. And, uh, and they're constantly hungry. They constantly want to eat and they'll just drink water all day because they constantly just have this, this uh, insatiable appetite. All right. And part of also what they do is artificial insemination. All turkeys today, if you're eating any kind of turkey, unless it's a heritage turkey, it has been artificially inseminated. Uh, the breasts are too big on the males and they cannot mount the females. And so none of the turkeys you eat, they're all been, there's a guy that goes in the turkey barns and they extract the semen from the males and they put it in the females. So it's a pretty gross system. Um, it is, um, a lot of people call them Franken chickens, okay? And if you really know them and you see them, they're very unnatural. I, having known a real chicken, knowing the Cornish cross, I know the Cornish cross is a very unnatural thing. Um, there's also a lot of consolidation control. The two companies kind of control the industry. They have a lot of power um, um, and, uh, and everything's the same. There's a huge monoculture. Every Cornish cross almost exactly genetically identical. We have 9 billion birds each year, raised each year. Whereas we used to have Plymouth Rock, New Hampshire, all these genetically diverse birds. And then there's even within each breed, there's much more genetic diversity than there is within the Cornish cross. So um, we've also lost a lot of genetic diversity um, within this. Okay, so, um, and this is a demonstration of how your modern day chicken is created. At the bottom, you have the Cornish cross, right? Okay, that's the that's chicken you're eating. On top of that, so um, let's, uh, Let's go back here. Okay. So um, let's say you are buying Empire Chicken. Empire Chicken buys parent stock. They buy a female line and a male line of breeders from the breeding companies. Okay. 
and they breed those and they create your chicken that way. That's what Empire does. Some people just buy, they go to hatchery, like a smaller, like let's say Grow and Behold or, or some other company that's smaller, right? These small um, poultry companies. They're not gonna necessarily buy their own breeders, but they will go to a, um, they'll go to a hatchery that has the breeders. They buy them from raw, you know, Aviagen and Cobb and they will create the Cornish cross, okay? And that's the bird that you eat. Now, on top of those breeders, you have an A, B, C, D line, okay? Um, this is called the parent stock, the breeders here. The breeders here are called parent stock. Above that, this is the grandparent stock, okay? And above that is the great grandparent stock. So you see there's A, B, C, D lines going into each one. Each of those lines maintains different amounts of those genetic mutations. And those are mixed in a fancy uh, way in order to get your bird that you need today, very specific way. So the A and B is made together to create an AB line. The C and the D are made together to create a CD line on both sides. And on top of that, you sometimes have great, great grandparent stock, which maintain higher amounts of these genetic mutations. And sometimes you'll go back and use those in order to, um, to even out their lines. There's no breeds anywhere in the in in this equation. Uh, also, the slower growing hybrids, the so-called slow growing hybrids, they have they don't grow slow. They just grow slower um, than the Cornish cross. They're maybe eight or nine or 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 twelve week birds. Those are also producing exactly the same system. They just produce them to grow a little bit slower. Okay, and so this is what the modern state industry looks like. This is every chicken produced in the United States. Almost is how it's done. Um, very well-maintained secret of the industry. Um, now, you know, some, of, especially some of these top levels, I'm a little bit hazy on, like it's not 100%, like I'm saying, but this is the basics here. It's, this is all, um, this is all secret stuff. You know, they don't tell people how they do this. So uh, some of the really high levels, I'm giving you my best understanding. Um, okay, so, and this is why I am working to start a standard bread heritage poultry farm, okay? I work with a man named Frank Reese. He raises chickens and turkeys and also um, some geese and ducks and guineas, but chickens and his turkeys is his biggest uh, thing. And, uh, and he is trying to preserve these breeds. We're not trying to change the whole industry, not right now at least, you know, that's not in the cards. We're just trying to preserve the past and to, cause it's really in danger of all being erased right now. The entire industry is in danger of being erased. He's the only remaining commercial breeder of standard bread poultry for commercial production in the United States, one of the only ones in the world. Um, the industry is very close to being completely destroyed. Um, so what we're doing is a preservation project, okay? Um, and uh, he does this on Good Shepherd Ranch in Kansas, and we're working to start an East Coast operation, which we're calling Lev Farm. Um, these are some of the breeds that we're trying to save. There's the New Hampshire on the left, uh, and there's a, um, bronze turkey on the right. That is a beautiful bronze turkey. I took that picture and um, the turkeys that we eat today don't look anything like that, um, like that bird. Okay, let's see. So as you can see, the industry is pretty, um, pretty sad today. Um, and the kosher industry is the same, uses all the same birds. Um, there is one company, Cole Foods, which is using heritage birds, um, but that's it. And, and that's not the majority of the chicken they sell. They sell just a couple thousand. Um, okay, so any, just any quick questions about the, uh, this breeding? 
Um, um, does this, so I just answered, does this mean Grow and Behold is offering anything different than Empire? Grow and Behold is pasture raising their birds. Empire does not pasture raise their birds. Grow and Behold also offers a slower growing hybrid, uh, the, the Freedom Rangers, I like to call it, marketing term. Um, and they let their birds go outside. Um, there's a question um, for if it's really better, how, how much better is it for these birds to go outside? Because they don't do well with weather extremes. Um, um, aren't those turkeys wild in New England? Are they in fact endangered? Um, bronze turkeys are not wild. Um, they were derived from wild populations, um, but that's not um, turkey. The bronze turkey today is different than the wild populations, much better meat quality um, than uh, wild turkeys. If anybody has um, any other questions, I've had an occasional problems with freedom, with even with freedom rangers putting on too much weight too fast and not being healthy. So I guess somebody that's farming freedom rangers had problems. Yes, the freedom rangers also, they're not healthy. It's not a healthy system. It's not a natural system. These birds aren't natural. They shouldn't be called organic in my opinion. Um, that's just organic feed. They're the farthest thing from organic I've ever seen. Um, and I've seen them, I've seen birds that are six weeks old and they're having heart failure and diabetes. I mean, it's not, uh, now they generally bred that they survive the first eight weeks that they can be relatively healthy. But after, <laughs> they really start to go downhill pretty soon after that. Um, uh, is this situation different in other countries with kosher livestock and poultry? No, it is not different anywhere except for in the third world, right? In developing countries, in India, let's say there's a lot of the old chickens, they don't really have breeds in India, but they have like country chickens, they call them. And about half the India, in India, about half the industry is the old industry and half is the new industry. And they're trying to push out the old industry and they're trying in, in Africa. And um, is it also to crossbreed? It's also to crossbreed if you're going to create um, an infertile offspring, but that's not what they're doing um, in these situations. They're not creating infertile offspring. It's not, it's fine to crossbreed different breeds of animals. You can't crossbreed different species. Um, that's not what they're doing. Okay, so um, as we can see, it's a system that maybe we don't like so much. Um, it's a, it's a credibly, incredible amount of suffering within the system. Every bird has pain walking. They have increased rates of heart failure and they're just pathetic and they're sad. You see them, my opinion, they're pathetic and sad birds. When they're out in the heat, they're just struggling to walk and, um, and the kosher, right? So what a lot of the questions I get looking at the magnitude of this and how terrible this situation is with these birds, to say, how can this be kosher? Isn't it Tsar Isn't this against Tsar Balechim? Isn't this against the rules of of causing unnecessary pain to animals. So we're gonna look a little bit at that, at that mitzvah. I'll try to do as much of the sources as I can. Um, I'm not gonna have time for everything, but we're gonna look at it a bit and uh, and just try to talk about it and and see where we get, okay? So we're gonna look a little bit at this mitzvah. All right, I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna share the, uh, the handout here. And okay, everybody sees the handout? Okay, good, very good. All right, so Tzar Balechim, Sefer Echinuch, book, important book, halachic book, okay, says, ve'od nomar betam ha-shechita min ha-tzavar besekin baduk, k'day shelo nitzair balechim yoter midai, ki ha-Torah hatiran la-adam le-ma'alato la-zon, mehem ve-lechol tzarcha ve-lo le-tzaran chinam, okay. And we can say the reason for slaughter from the neck, the check knife, for shechita, right? is in order that we don't cause too much pain to living beings. As the Torah only permitted man, 
due to his status that we are um, in the hierarchy and a higher level than the animals, okay, to derive nourishment from them. We have a right to derive nourishment from them for all our needs, but not to cause them pain for no reason, okay? So we can see here we're allowed to cause animals pain and suffering, but there has to be a human need for it, okay? And then this is, um, uh, I'm just gonna, we don't have a lot of time, so I'm just gonna go to the Hebrew. First, I mean, to the English, okay? Um, now, next is from Sefer Tzar Balechim. I'm gonna bring a lot from this Sefer. It's a book which is just about the mitzvah of Tzar Balechim, about, um, about not causing unnecessary pain to animals. The whole, it's a huge book, all about all different things. Um, and it brings just a lot of the sources and I'm gonna bring just some things from that book, okay? First, we must say there is no clear source for the mitzvah of Tzar Balechim in the Torah. There's nowhere where it says Tzar Balechim. In, in the Torah that this is not allowed. It doesn't, or in the Mishnah or in the Gemara. There's nowhere that says exactly where it's from. Therefore, the Rishonim disagreed on the matter. The Rishonim, the first of the large uh, halachic uh, commentators disagreed on exactly where we get from the Torah, where we get Tzar Balichim from, okay? Uh, there is sources brought in the Gemara, but there's no agreement upon where it came from in the end of that discussion. Um, it's in Bava Matthias, if anybody's ever interested in it. Um, and brought several different sources for the prohibition, and these are them. So these are some of the most um, uh, influential halachic thinkers where they've brought sources of where we learn Tzar from. We learn this from the mitzvah of Prika. Um, this is the mitzvah that says, if an animal has a, a load on it and it falls, it can't carry the load, you have to go and help that animal. You have to take the load off the animal in order to lighten its burden, okay? <clears throat> we learn this from the prohibition of muzzling. So there's a prohibition against muzzling animals while they're working. So this would be like um, animals which thresh a field, um, which was not done by tractors, but then it was done by animals. You can't muzzle them while they work, so they, which keeps them from eating, eating the food. You know, otherwise they might eat your stuff. They're saying, towards saying, you have to let them eat your stuff. You can't muzzle them. <clears throat> um, we learn this from the claim against Bilam. So um, an angel, Bilam, in the story in the Torah, where he hit a donkey, and the angel uh, said, you, it's bad, you shouldn't do that. We learned from there, okay? Um, <clears throat> we learned this from the miracle which provided water for flocks, for the flocks in the cities. Um, uh, you know, I'm just forgetting exactly where this came from. I looked at it earlier, but I, I just, uh, I'm forgetting it. But um, there was a miracle which was providing water for uh for the people, but it also provide. Oh, that's right. In 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 Mitzrayim, when they had the blood, it, it provided water for people and for the animals, not just for the Jewish people. And so this is another place where they're saying we learn from, and we learn this from the pasuk and his mercies and all his creations. which is from Tehillim, which is from Ashrei, right? Um, okay. God is good to all, and his mercy is, uh, or his compassion is on all his creatures. Um, and Rikva says, this is halacha l'moshem b'sinai. It's halacha l'moshem b'sinai, that you're not allowed to cause animal suffering for no reason, all right? <clears throat> um, so I think when you look at these sources there, first they bring in some very like, um, uh, you know, some some things where you really have to like sacrifice for animals. There's, there's things that are really, um, that, you know, that are, that are really inconvenient. And, and they're bringing really strong ideas of having to be kind to animals. There's, others, there's other places where it talks about not castrating animals. If you know anything about modern agriculture, castration is a really big part of um, agriculture and it's a really an inconvenience to not castrate. And so the Torah brings down a lot of things which are very inconvenient, which are hard to do, that it's really pushing us to treat animals better. Um, <clears throat> now, but at the same time, uh, 
it also um, emphasizes the needs of man quite a bit. And when you look at the halachot of Tzav needs of man are very, very, uh, are pushed very strongly. And it says that anything, <clears throat> Jimmy, so we can see here, if we look at Shulchan Aruch, the Ramah and Shulchan Aruch in Eben Ezer 5.14, he says, um, there's a discussion about Tzav about some different things. And Ramah brings in, and this is brought a lot in the sources, Anything which we need for healing, uh, medical purposes, or for any other thing that we need, that human needs, right? There is no concern about the Isser, about Tzar in it. You don't have to worry. If you're doing it for any kind of human need, any kind of human need, you don't have to worry about, about Tzar Balechem. Okay, so... And so what we can see is, as we look at actually the situations, when, when this is brought down into the world, the Torah sets this really grand ambition. But when it's actually brought into the world, we see it's very, 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 um, the, the, the ambition is really brought down to earth. And, um, and, and it's very, very uh, um, lenient on these things. <clears throat> so here we have also from Sefer Tzav Lechaim, Tzav Lechaim Sablechim is allowed for the needs of man. Uh, for things like healing, avoda, work, the kavod, even kavod, right? Even um, the uh, just so you could have a you know some honor. Like let's say like wearing a shtrimel on Shabbat, right? That's kavod. It's a beautiful thing. Maybe the, the fox has to suffer, but even that is is acceptable because you're giving somebody a beautiful garment. All right. So really taking the needs of man uh, very very is very important. Okay. <clears throat> now we're seeing, oh, but there is some limits here. Although <clears throat> there's those that say that you can't just make an animal suffer. At least there's those that, sh- that say, right? Not everybody. Those that say that you're not allowed to cause animal suffering in order to benefit monetarily or for just um, mere pleasure amusement. You're not allowed to cause sablechim. But even that is not fully agreed upon. So we can see that it's it's going down, right? We're saying, oh, a lot of things kind of are allowed. The the grand ambition of the Torah is maybe not so much, doesn't translate into the real world um, uh, so well um, or so strictly, let's say. Um, okay. And so, and then well, we can see later in the later in the sefer Tzavalechaim, what he says just a little bit later is, We know that Tzavalechaim is allowed for eating, for um, for carrying uh, carrying things, and you know, all those types of normal things. But can this thing just be allowed for monetary gain? The post scheme had his disagreement in there. Uh, and I'm not going to go into all the disagreement because there's way too much. We're not going to have time. But ulam, although rubam However, the majority of poskim assert that is allowed for financial gain. Okay? So there is some disagreement, but pretty much everybody in the end agrees that it is allowed for financial gain. I mean, not everybody, but the majority of them and the modern day thing today is that you are allowed for financial gain. Now, I think this is oftentimes really the correct approach. If you were to say it's never, it's not allowed for financial gain. I mean, there's all the time things you have to do in order to make an operation um, uh, just feasible, and it's going to cause them suffering 
Um, and you're going to have to have a balance there. You know, um, even if you want to treat the animal really kindly, you're going to have to make sacrifices in order to make it feasible to, to make yourself just be able to live. And especially back when these laws were written, you know, it's, uh, this was people could barely survive, you know, it's, it's, this is not something where you can just say you can't have financial gain if you're going to cause an animal suffering. Um, maybe it doesn't get fully to the nuances here, but, uh, but ultimately I think this is probably the right approach that you, you do need to be able to have financial gain from animal suffering. And certainly things like animal testing are allowed and, uh, and eating animals, killing them for food is allowed, even though it's agreed upon that causes suffering. <clears throat> now, but let's go even a level deeper, right? So we're going to something like foie gras, right? Which is force feeding of ducks and geese. We're going to really things which are considered pretty cruel in the world, right? Um, what, what, we, what we do know is that you can't just like hit an animal for no reason, just because you feel like it, just because you want to be mean. That is definitely not allowed, right? Um, that is definitely tar lechaim. So I would, from what we see now is animal cruelty is tar lechaim, but it's foie gras, which is pretty widely considered cruel. And it's just really making the meat maybe better or just improving the taste. Um, is that really allowed? Um, so let's see <clears throat> what uh, some things that are brought here in Sefer Tzar B'Lechaim. And there's some discussion here before this about, um, about foie gras, and uh, it was very long. So, you know, I just kind of took here to what he says in the end about it. Um, and, and therefore, we can't, um, we, we can't establish that there's no suffering for these, uh, for these ducks and, and geese and stuff like that in our days. I'll can, I'll call Panim, anyways. Even if they have tsar, even though we say, uh, um, even though they have tsar, they have suffering, um, we know that tsar is allowed for the needs of man. As long as it's not like, like mamish, like a totally um, cruel thing that he's doing. And we know that there's been lots of Jews and people from Israel that have done this for many generations that have force fed the ducks, right? That we have to, we have to, uh, we have to, um, you know, we have to acknowledge that. And even though we are worried that there might be trefot in these animals, um, it was written, I don't know, I forget who that is, but. Um, that this this uh, opinion wrote, and there is to let the people that do this, there is to be make on them to say, okay, do it. They're not saying we love it. It does seem to be kind of like, okay, you're kind of crossing the line, but we're still going to say, okay, you know what? You can do it if you really want. And we'll see more about this uh, soon. Okay. So even something like foie gras, okay, we don't really like it, but you know what? It's not you're doing it in order to make the meat better. Maybe it makes you money. Okay, you know what? It's still allowed. Okay, maybe we don't love it, but it's still allowed. Veal, similar thing is said with veal. This is from, I grew up Moshe, from Moshe Feinstein's chuba. A lot of times people say, he said it's not allowed. He didn't really say that. He said, and, and he answered about veal in his book of Shelot uh, Chuvot, Moshe Feinstein. nefesh that a ball nefesh, somebody that's really careful, that, that's really trying to be on, on a high level, should not eat 
from veal, from veal that have been, he's talking about veal that have been mistreated, not just young cattle. A veal that have really been mistreated, they've been kept in, in the cages and it's made their, their, their meat white. Even after they've, they've been checked really closely that they're not trafe, because most of them turn out trafe because of all the bad conditions they're raised in. But he did say that if somebody actually raises these animals, they are trespassing on Tzar So he's even saying you might trespass on Tzar by doing something, but the person who eats it is not necessarily trespassing. Okay? So the main thing here is that, um, um, uh, and, and what is he saying actually? That, and even though is, is allowed for that, that raising animals in this way is asr, like a Jew should do it at least, because of achzariyu, because it's cruel. Okay, so we're kind of getting to okay, it's really cruel, but they're still not making not allowed, right? So what we can see from tzarbelechim is it gives a lot of a lot of leniency towards cruel what I would say are cruel practices in the industry. And this is not even to get into like um, just like um, producing fast-growing chickens, which lowers their price significantly and makes them much more affordable for um, needy consumers, people that don't have money. They have 10 kids and need to feed them all. I mean, that's really hard, you know? So um, certainly there's basically no discussion. Everybody said, oh, you, they say, why do you allow factory? You say, well, people need to be able to afford to eat, right? That's the thing that's brought. Um, you can see there's not really much here um, about Tzav Lechim that really gets translated into, into the industry. What people talk about is you can't, basically it's against animal cruelty, like just torturing an animal. That's basically what we got. And when you get to these really cool practices, maybe it's not allowed, right? That's kind of what we're getting in the laws. Um, all right, so I'm just gonna skip a little bit and just get to the, I think the most important part. Um, uh, this is so what we have, you know, and I think what kind of what we're getting to here is the Achzariyut piece at the end. We kind of want to focus in on that. He says, Well, you really shouldn't do this because it's cruel. Maybe it's not Sarbalechaim because you're not just doing it just to like stab an animal just to have fun or something, but it's cruel. It's like it's obviously not right. Okay, so, um, we have here in if we go back to the uh, to the Ramah. Let's go over here, right? We go back to this, to this Ramah. After he says, basically you can, you, anything that you need for ifwa or for any of your needs, you can do You can make the animal suffer if you need it. And therefore you can, you can take off feathers from the geese I mean, you don't have to worry about Tzav Lechim. Now, why would they take, from what they've seen the sources, why would they take feathers off the geese? Is so they would grow fatter in the winter. So they would grow fatter. They'd have to grow more fat. They wouldn't have as much feather cover. Saying even for that, just to improve the flavor of the meat, you can do it, okay? Um, nevertheless, right? Uh, anyways, we don't do it because it's cruel. Because it's a really horrible thing to do to animals. So we're kind of getting to this saying, okay, even though maybe Tzavar doesn't really protect against practices and farming, um, we do have to think about about just being cruel, and that's not right. And um, 
and I think that's kind of where we get to um, the key about this is that um, we, we, we don't want to have a but what do we want to have? We want to have compassion for all. Okay. But what does that mean having compassion for all? Um, one of the things I think to look at is Bereshit. And it says here, and God said, let's make man our image after our likeness. They shall rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the cattle, the whole earth, and all the creeping things that creep on it, right? Man is at the top of the world. He will rule over the world. That is our place. That's where God, God put us. Um, that's, that's what I believe. I disagree with the vegans on this. I do not think that we are equal. Anything. I think God put us here to be the ruler the, at the top of the world. Does it, that doesn't mean that we could be cruel and horrible and destroy the world, but that is our place. And we have to we have to think from within that place. And if we don't, then we actually ruin society. We will destroy society. We'll destroy ourselves um, because we don't understand where we are. Okay. And God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female created them. God created man in his image. Just like God created a way for animals to adjust to their environment, to be healthy, to be fertile. So should we do that. But, in, but now what we've done is we've created animals which are sick so we could have cheaper meat now. Cheaper meat helps some people, but ultimately we're creating animals that are sick, that are suffering. And I don't think this is something that God does, right? Um, I'm gonna go to the next piece here. And what is the Rambam's, uh, here in the Rambam, we bring another um, mitzvah, okay? That I think is very important. And you should go in God's ways. You should be like God. And even it is said, and thou shalt walk in his ways. And explaining this commandment, the sages taught us thus, this is from the Rambam. Um, even as he is called gracious, be thou gracious. Even as he is called merciful, be thou merciful. Even as he is called holy, be thou holy. Just like God is gracious, we should be gracious. We should have mercy like God. And what do we know about God from this thing that's Prophet Chaim, the source? His mercy is on all his works, okay? And what does that mean? That means we need to have mercy on animals. That's one piece, right? Just like God has mercy on animals and all his works, we need to have mercy on animals. But it doesn't just include animals, it also includes people. And if we say, oh, this interview is terrible, humans are disgusting, um, we should all, you know, and, uh, and, and what we did is terrible. That's a lot of the vegan line is humans are so evil and they've killed animals for food and it's just an evil thing. We don't think that way. And that's the wrong way to think about it. Um, humans are not evil for doing this. And even the system, right? This whole crazy system that we've created with F-14 hybrids and animals being artificially inseminated. And it's a horrible system. But you know what? There's very poor people that are really benefiting from having more affordable meat. I would like to see really healthy meat that comes from happy animals that are that 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 are healthy, being for also affordable to these poor people. And I think it could be. And there is a thing that you know the factory farm meat. This meat is so rare now; it's become very expensive. It could be closer, and it could be more affordable for them. The more expensive meat. I don't think it has to be this way. But at the same time, it's not fair for us to say, you know what? You're sinful. You're a sinful person because you don't, and you're you you trespass on Sarah Belechaim because you don't eat the meat that I can afford that is that is so nice that animals are treated so well. It's it's very very um, it's very arrogant of us to think that way, especially rich people, especially when you know you go into poor communities and um, we can't do that. And so that's why Judaism does not let us do that. Judaism says no, humans come first. Humans are not sinful for mistreating animals, but we should work on this. We should get better. We should have mercy on all our on all on all our works. And that's my thing: is let's try to go in a better direction. Some, you know, let's let's try to take the Chazariut out of the agricultural system. We all share 
in in this we you know most of us are going to go and they're going to eat chicken again from the system now after this talk um i i still eat chicken from the system sometimes okay um it's not easy you know and we all even the rich people it's they are living in the system it's hard the other stuff isn't available it's not everybody we need to have mercy on everybody in this but hey let's try to let's try to do a little better so in terms of that i'll just go really quick um a couple of things here so there's nine billion broilers uh nine plus billion broilers in the united states each year 350 million uh 340 million layers there's pigs there's dairy there's beef there's veal and there's all kinds of huge um welfare issues and all these things i think a lot of cruelty inherent to these systems the way that we've built them um and everybody almost everybody here will go back and eat from these systems again after this thing so how do we change it so first off we have to have that compassion for all everybody the people working in the factory farm system ourselves each other the animals we have to have compassion needs to be number one and that's been the biggest problem of the vegan movement is that they claim to have compassion but they don't have the i'm not saying every vegan but i'm saying the movement as a whole does not have compassion for people they only have compassion for animals the wrong approach we have compassion for all that's number one also for the vegans we should have compassion there's a lot of meat eaters that have, don't have compassion for vegans we all need to have compassion okay <clears throat> understanding um one piece here is that people want to say no we should say tsar it's against it and and the rabbi should make a thing and say you can't eat any factory farm meat it's not going to work it doesn't work that way this is a huge system there's nine billion there's a whole industry there's hundreds of thousands of people working in this there's people relying on this for the thing it doesn't work it's never going to happen and it wouldn't be right it wouldn't be right to the people who can't afford it and it wouldn't be right to the people working in the industry it wouldn't be right for anybody and it wouldn't work and it wouldn't be accepted. There's something the rabbi say, you can't make a gzer that, that the, the kal cannot stand, stand with. You can't make a gzer that the community can't hold. You can't make that gzer, it's just not gonna work. We have to understand the industry, understanding this, under, most people don't understand the poultry industry. I just hope, hopefully you understand the poultry industry better now. If you don't understand the problems, you're not gonna be able to, not gonna be able to change it. You have to understand the consumer, all right? Understanding, how can we get these more expensive things to sell and grow? And, 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 um, and then we need to invest our money, whether it's just buying something, or whether you're an investor and you can invest in like a great business that will create these better products. The main thing is these products just aren't available to people. So we invest, we really have to invest resources. I see so many building of, of Jewish community centers and this and that, and so many millions and millions, $20 million, $50 million shuls being built. $1 million to a few million dollars for a slaughterhouse could change the world in such a huge manner in terms of these things. We need to um, also think about, in my opinion, think about these within our investing and where we're putting our resources. And the, and the change needs to be grassroots, bottom up. The government's not gonna save us. The government can't tell everybody that you have to eat meat that you can't afford and that we have no system for. The government is bought out by the industry. And even if it wasn't, it's not gonna save everything. Look at Europe where they do do things. Their things are still just benefit the industry. There's, they're not going to make all these chickens illegal or something. We have to have bottom up change. And that means it's up to each of us to really create the change as best we can and to have compassion for ourselves. <clears throat> we have to create um, solutions that resonate with the consumer. That's understanding the consumer. I really like uh, what Elon Musk says, and I've really been impressed with what he's done with Tesla. Um, when you have a product that really resonated with the consumer, the word of mouth reson um, spreads like wildfire. I put in the wrong word. It spreads like wildfire. Okay. Um, we, it, milk, 
really changed. The industry has changed. Organic milk, grass-fed milk is just growing like crazy because it's a product that's resonating with the consumer. We can't force this. We can't have the rabbis force it. We can't have the government force it. It's up to us. And that's that's the way to create change. Um, and that is the presentation. <clears throat> okay. Um, I think there is a few um, questions here I'll answer. And if anybody has other ones, I can come in. Can we um, <clears throat> the completely random I read the most the country that consumes the most turkey is Israel. Um, yes, that's true. They consume the most turkey per capita. Very cheap to produce meat. Obviously, it's not heritage. It's modern industrial, and that's really why it became so popular there. Israel, you know, people uh, don't have as much money as they do here, and they appreciate that. Um, <clears throat> okay. How does the meat bird industry compare to the layer industry as far as breeding? Um, it's the same basic thing, but they're breeding for heavy laying. And there are problems, but the birds are live longer. They live a, a year or two. Um, but this huge problem is also they, they kill all the males at birth. They put them in a grinder, basically grind them alive at birth because they don't need them. Um, tons of issues in the egg industry. Well, the chickens aren't healthy either because they're just being made to lay more than, than is possible. Um, as, as foie gras sort, um, most opinions hold that it's not a sort to eat foie gras, but there's definitely people that say you shouldn't eat it. It's better not to. Um, are castrated animals kosher to eat? Uh, they are kosher to eat. Um, a Jew can't castrate an animal, but they're not considered not kosher to eat. Um, why is it so hard to find kosher goose? Goose is very hard to pluck, um, and especially kosher, and very and expensive to produce. So it's become very uh, uncommon, especially in the industrial model. It's very hard to fit geese, geese into that. Um, doesn't really fit. Ducks can barely fit into it, and goose really much harder to change. What practices would you change to be more humane? Uh, breeding practices are my number one. Um, <clears throat> breeding practices in the poultry industry, it's, uh, uh, <clears throat> in my opinion, the biggest issue we have, uh, in, welfare issue in the world, is it's the most common. It's the, the things that are happening are the worst, in my opinion. You have these issues. People have an easy time getting behind issues like how an animal is slaughtered or um, even more easier like foie gras. There's very rare, very little foie gras eaten. It's a very, it's a very hoity-toity thing. Um, Veal, they've already improved veal a lot from how it was produced. It's not a commonly eaten meat, um, but it's, it's it's chicken, nine billion. It's the most eaten meat, and it's they suffer every day of their lives. So that's that's the changes we're trying to do, and um, <clears throat> the biggest thing is in, is investing your money buying better chicken. You can buy from Whole Foods, maybe hopefully from us in the future. You can buy some you know uh, standard bread chicken, kosher standard bread chicken. Um, uh, Cold Foods has heritage, some heritage chicken. Um, you can get grass-fed beef. You can try a little bit better beef. You, you can get it here and there, but there needs to be investors. That's a big one because we need to start the right kind of companies because it's just not available that much. Um, <clears throat> those are the main, you know, things that can really be done. And then just, you know, yeah. So if you know anybody that's looking to invest, that's a, that's a really good thing to do. Impact investing, something it's called. You mentioned wanting to work with different animals like deer or elk. Um, um, oh, there's a, a whole kind of questions. Um, uh, so shechting wild animals is really hard. It's not something we really do anymore. Uh, generally, if you're shechting deer or elk, it's coming from a farm nowadays. It's very hard to, to, um, to restrain a wild animal and to, to slaughter it. Okay. Khalida, tell us more about your farm. So I work with, um, Frank Reese in Kansas, and he has, you know, his his friend, he has his farm in Kansas, and um, 
and uh, and we're working on starting one out here on the East Coast. We do have a property in Southern New Jersey, and uh, we're looking right now for the funding to uh, expand his business, the Good Shepherd Poultry Ranch, on the new farm, Lev Farm, expand his business and start raising uh, here standard red poultry. The biggest market for standard red chicken is New York, um, and then also the kosher markets here in South Jersey in uh, Egg Harbor City. So, um, and um, this is, um, excuse me, uh, um, this is the biggest market. So we want to expand it, but we do need the investors. So if you know anybody, so you can invest in an amazing opportunity, the next Tyson of the world, but ethical, um, please let, let me know. Um, uh, and his, he's also, you can watch the movie Eating Animals. He was in it, uh, Frank Reese was in it. He was the star of the movie. And he's been on Martha Stewart's show and some different things. And uh, you can find him in the book Eating Animals as well. And, um, and he's had success, but we need to grow. But we really need investors to grow, investors that are willing to take a chance, but in something that has huge potential. So um, that's, that's a little bit about the farm. So we're working on, on getting it built here and, uh, and uh, raising his animals, pasture raised on the farm, separate animals, making them available to the small farmers on the East Coast getting them to the farmer's markets and really changing the industry. And that's kind of what we're trying to do. Okay, how do, how do kosher slaughterhouses deal with things like mad cow disease? Mad cow disease, um, the American government's done a lot of things to deal with that. Um, they check animals before slaughter, if they're showing any kind of signs. And they also, um, they, also um, they don't allow eating of brains anymore in the United States. Um, you can't get cow brains. You can, I think that's not necessary, but um, that's what they've done. So people can't get it. I don't think it's necessary. I think they could do other things. And there hasn't been medical disease in a long time uh, in the United States, thank God. All right, uh, that's about all the questions I've seen. If anybody has anything else, um, I can uh, keep answering questions um, or we can finish up here. Okay, what is the largest cost aside from land? Are you planning on your own slaughterhouse? Um, <clears throat> land is not really the biggest cost. The biggest cost is the infrastructure, um, the poultry barns and the hatchery, building and hatching your own animals and the, and the infrastructure, the electric, gas, everything that you need to do. It, this, a breeding operation is not like these pastured where they pushing around a tractor and buying from a large hatchery factory farm chicks, which is what most pasture operations do. That's what they're relegated to. They can't really do much more. A breeding operation is more intensive. Uh, you have to have animals year round. You have to keep their houses heated and you have to hatch. And so the hatchery is also expensive. So, um, okay, jewishveg.org. This is a resource on Jewish vegetarians for those who are interested, shalom all. Yeah, so jewishveg.org is a Jewish uh, vegetarian organization. Um, I'm not a fan. Um, I think they, pull a lot, they push a lot of lies about Judaism, uh, is my opinion. They say in on the website that, um, that causing animal suffering is not allowed. I contacted them, uh, is not allowed according to Tzavlechim. I contacted them and said, that's not true. Look at the sources, it's obviously not true. They said, well, because people don't need to eat meat today, that is true today. I said, well, at least you could say, but we hold, you are allowed to cause animal suffering for human benefit, but meat isn't needed. They could have said the whole thing out and given their argument, but they didn't even do that. And they didn't want to, and that's just not true. And also, the opinion, Jewish opinion is people do need to eat meat. That's my opinion in terms of health, um, that meat is needed. But you know, um, 
uh, teach his own, you know, they're allowed to their opinion, but I, I just say I'm not a fan. Um, what happened to kosher bison slaughter? Bison are very hard to um, to hold. They're very hard to um, to uh, to hold for shechita, and I've heard that they die slowly. They don't die well, um, so I don't know if they can really be shechted um, humanely or not. But I do have a theory that if you shecht it really well, high up, certain practices you can do to make a shechita faster, better, they could die in a reasonable amount of time. I'd have to 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 um, I'd have to have bison to investigate to do that. They were doing it in Minnesota, uh, but Noah's Ark moved their plants to, to plant in Nebraska and that plant can't handle bison. So they basically stopped doing it and you can't get bison meat anymore that's kosher. Um, but they do now from that Nebraska plant export meat to Israel. America started as the only plant in America that exports beef to Israel. Uh, didn't used to happen. All right, okay. Um, All right, thank you so much for coming. Um, we really have learned so much from your Torah in the last uh, over the past week, and it's been just such a pleasure. So, on behalf of Drisha, we just wanted to thank you again uh, for bringing your Torah and and making this week so incredible as it's been so far. Um, and we will all be back tomorrow with um, Drisha's very own Michael Fraud who um, is both a, uh, spent many years working on farms and, and in addition to that has done a lot of, um, you know, plant growing related education. Um, and so we're really excited to learn, uh, to learn from him tomorrow night and that will complete this series as part of our Winter's Mod. And next week we'll be back with a different series um, called Plenty and Scarcity. And we'll be talking about um, food distribution um, more specifically and, and actually particularly like in the United States, but also how Halakha thinks about plenty and scarcity uh, and distribution there. So we look forward to continue learning with you and thank you all so much for coming. Have a wonderful evening. Thank you so much. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye.